Now, don't forget, we're doing a live client-only event in mid-October 2022. I'll be speaking. Ryan Griggs will be speaking. Dr. Paul Cleveland will be speaking. Our whole team will be there. You're going to have the opportunity to meet all of us, and you'll have the opportunity to meet other people, individuals that are practicing the infinite banking concept from all over the country. Iron sharpens iron, so you should be there. It'll be worth it. Look forward to meeting you. Look forward to seeing you. Be there. Be square. In this episode, Ryan and I talk about getting something for nothing and the eager investor syndrome. And then we wrap it up with his passionate lesson in economics. It was lovely. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Welcome to the Bank with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And here we are at the world headquarters of Banking with Life. 20 miles south of Fort Worth, Texas, in an undisclosed protected location, protected from the boot jacks. It's not disclosed, but I'm going to tell you right where it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and, and behind the golden microphone, I'm kidding. So, all right, so we don't really have a lot of topics today, but. Oh, you always say that. Yes, we do. We generally. I recently, I so saw on the way down here, as I normally do. So, Ryan has a lot of topics today. Um, Episode 138 was with Paul Lizell. Lizell. Sorry, Paul, if I'm butchering your last name. Mr. Real Estate Man. You know, I, I noticed you've had a lot of real estate people on recently. Are you trying to send a marketing message out there? No, to no, listen. No, 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 no. Real estate investors or mailbox no. money, passive cash flow? Did mailbox money come out of my mouth in there anywhere? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. Listen, I love Paul. He's a client. He's a friend, and that's what he does in, in the, uh, well, the other... I think you may be referring to uh, Becky, Becky and Stringer. Jerry Stringer, yeah. great friends, and you know that's what she does. It, no, I'm not. No, catering to the real estate market. Uh, Got some lead gen lists you can go on if you want. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so you saying you didn't like the episode? No, no. I really. I mean, what I like is that you can tell that these are like legitimate people who are. Just going along in their day-to-day lives, actually doing it. It's not a promotional sales kind of thing. No. No, they're just... I mean, look, I, I have clients, and I'm sure you do as well, I mean, all across the country, and they do all kinds of things, whatever it is they do, and generally they're pretty good at it. Uh, therefore, they generate uh, cash and cash flows and understand leverage and cash flows. Yeah. And so they... they uh, you know, they resonate this idea of becoming your own banker resonates with them very well. So no, I just make, I just poke fun because so often IBC is misrepresented as this thing that's for the investor and yeah. it's how to, you know, all the marketing, how to 10 X your investment cash flow. It's like, uh. Uh, yeah, I know. You, you know, and I think I've said it and because it's true and I continue to say it. Um, my whole idea or thought process of having clients on, is for them to share their experience, you know, and yeah. what their thought process, what their thought process took them through, you know, because when we're all, when we're exposed to the infinite banking concept for the first time, becoming your own banker, it's a very foreign idea. Yeah. And, you know, and like Jerry, I didn't know that he, he did, uh, you know, A.L. Williams, buy term and invest the difference and you know hunting down the that's yeah that's another similarity across the stringers and then paul is the prior financial experience yes so prior financial experience and then became clients but not just clients but like serious like paying a substantial premium okay in my 
a relatively limited experience compared to you, uh, that's not the norm. And I shared with you a story yesterday of an individual I was talking to who has some experience in the insurance world and finance broadly. Mm -hmm. And uh, normally it's an ear beating. And it's for you to listen to the the people with financial experience. It's a lot of the preconceived ideas that have that migrate over. And, and not just about finance or the financial strategies or concepts, generally speaking, although that is the case, but then also the the patterns of behavior with respect to the interactions. Yes. Just the conversation, you know, the kind of treating, it, it's a, it's as if, you know, hurt people hurt people. It's as if they've had like a, like traumatic experiences it's, with clients previously and it's, it's poured it over. Yes. And there's a hostility and or or a skepticism or like like it's got there's it's got to be frigid. It's so unpleasant, mm-hmm. and you know, and this nobody's off the table. I'm not like cross. I'm not saying that. Eh, I don't think it's worth. I mean, my background is as an economist. That's not financial experience, but it's adjacent. You know, it's swimming in the same sort of ideas. Uh, so I'm not casting anybody out or saying, you know, it's not going to happen. But just generally speaking, people with the prior financial experience, it's a struggle. And then so, but then you've got, (laughs) then you've got Jerry. And then of course, Becky as well. I mean, real estate agent. And then Paul, uh, 21 years. I mean, it's not like he fell off the apple cart yesterday and started doing it. I mean, these are legitimate financial people who became great clients. And I just look at that and I'm in admiration. <laughs> <laughs> but look too, you know, from the Austrian background, from the economic, the, uh, the uh, economist uh, training that you've had and the, and, and you continue to do, I mean, you have a, a bachelor's and a master's and, mm. you know, economics and these PhD. So, and that's very, very, very theoretical. Um, and, you know, you can dive deep into particular points. I mean, trust me, uh, they they dive very deep into particular points, with, and I love it. Right, I'm a, I'm kind of a spectator in that, um, and, and I'm a student of Austrian economics as well. But you you, it, I mean, I see, in theory, right, the Austrian economics just you know I hate to say it, but behavioral economics. I'd rather say human action. You know, there's the math, and then there's the human and what they actually do, right? But when you can take that your background, and then actually apply it legitimately at the you and me level. How many people from the financial world are even open-minded enough to consider uh, something that they have not been taught formally, right? <laughs> the the yeah. list narrows. Yeah, right? dramatically. And then, and then um, you know, I'm glad you brought up that conversation because the, the, the experience that you had, because I had two recent experiences within the last seven to 10 days. Um, and they they were very similar. And I see often there's, I don't want to be distinctive here. You know, the, the CFO, the CFA, the CPA, the tax attorney, you know, the, uh, the accountant at a high level, um, the forensic accountant, and then the investment advisor from years gone by. Um, you know, they all come from their background and their experiences and the unlearning that's required 
is difficult. So my kudos to the individual who can, you know, yeah. deconstruct their previous learning. Now I'm going to be distinctive here. <laughs> A couple of my recent experiences, which matches yours, um, the the client or the prospective client that has had or is currently going through um, this idea of becoming a life insurance agent, mm. right? And then being trained to be a life insurance agent through all these IMOs, IMOs, an independent marketing organization, or FMO, field marketing organization. And they're trained in dang near 1950 sales tactics, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's final expense or annuities or this god-awful universal life or retirement planning, quote-unquote. And and when you get that on you, it is very difficult to get it off of you. Yep. Those things don't translate well in into the infinite banking arena where you're just sharing the – the, the the idea and the very fact that you you at the you and me level can control the banking function right it's they're apples and oranges yes we're using life insurance there's no question we're using a particular kind of life insurance mutual issued by mutual companies dividend paying participating um, and and it's still a stepchild in the financial world whole life insurance is still a stepchild in the financial world yeah well we've so, we've noticed recently a, a little website article thing making the rounds notice because it's placed in front of your face yeah right yeah uh you know i I only mention that because in there he says you know the the guys the nni guys nelson nash institute authorized practitioners say that you know they they put out propaganda that whole life is the only asset you can use for ibc when in fact you can use index universal life if you're the kind of person who wants some exposure to the market. Yeah. And then this, uh, and I think recently has been a a development in the sophistication of the justification for that whole thing is, yep. well, if the accusation is that the underlying insurance component is annually renewing term, which it is, and mortality cost rises exponentially, which it does, and so the cost of insurance rises exponentially, which it will, and if I get into my 50s, 60s, and 70s, then that exponential curve starts to really steepen and head north well then i'll just give up some of the death benefit and i'll only have to pay the uh, cost of mortality on the lower death benefit and it's like okay that's creative i mean that gets you a step further and holding on white knuckling that belief right but you're not telling me that that stays a non-mech and that cash flow is available as as in in a passive cash flow sense on the same contractual grounds that it is with whole life it's all trying to play market. It's all trying to rate of return, rate of return, rate of return. And th- you know, this is not, I'm, we mentioned real estate people earlier. I'm not saying that this is Paul. I have just noticed that with some, especially younger uh, investor types uh, who hear about IBC. So I'm talking to you, TikTok, like all the people there, it's just ringing and you know, squeezing every dime of cash value possible out of the policy in the first three years or whatever it is, there's such a failure among that hyperactive online millennial investor type of the segment of the market that 
it still hasn't sunk in that the banking problem is permanent. Yeah. And if even if you're successful, especially if you're successful in all those and mailbox money, passive yeah. cash flow mm-hmm. ideas, the problem only gets more severe. Right. The people without the bank, without a banking problem are the people with no cash flow. And so the ones, it, the, the more it is, regardless of it's W2 or 1099 or K1 or whatever kind of income it is, the banking problem only becomes more severe, especially if in your, if you're in a, a type of industry that's especially credit dependent. I really liked how Paul raised this idea because he said he was in 2001 is when he got started. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, oh, so he was around for 08. What happened then? And he he talked about how in 08, his uh, BPOs, uh, sort of like a soft appraisal from just the broker, broker price opinion, was sufficient for a private lender to provide capital to go do deals. And then overnight, that was no longer accepted. Now you need an appraisal. Okay, so now you got to pay the appraisal. You got to go through the scheduling and all that added delay, added expense. And that's just one change that the banker determined would be required. And that's not, you could go even further. You could go into Grant Cardone and Dave Ramsey and all these people who uh, in prior corrections, not only experienced increased cost of borrowing, but just went bankrupt. What? Yeah. So the- (laughs) Because they weren't controlling the banking function? Yeah. And is TikTok even 10 years old? I mean, are there even videos about what happened back in 08? It seems to me like it was like yesterday, but (laughs) that's not even on. And we talk, we've mentioned before how the mutual fund managers on average stick around for five years, if that. So like the number of professional fund managers who were around during a previous correction is very small in percentage terms of the whole field. And everybody just skips clean over that. And so all these new people who are so active, they're going to go out and generate all this money and do it. Great. Wonderful. Not solving for the banking function. And then it's related to this other thing where, you know, there's this then talking to one of the industry people, financial experience. Uh, you know, I was talking to another agent. I wanted to talk to another one to get another hey, opinion. Hey, look at all this time you have. Okay, great. Yeah, I know. Uh, no. Uh, you want to talk to, you know, and so I'm explaining the process and how we do things. And, you know, then the response was, oh, yeah, you know, the other guy pretty much explained exactly that. Ooh. You know, you guys are all <laughs> the same. It's kind of pretty much the same. <laughs> and I'm like, uh huh. Well, how about company selection? Like, what's the criteria there? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Well, then maybe we're not the same, mm-hmm. right? Well, one of the, this individual who had said that was doing his other research online and he came across some of the wonderful online forums, which are so fun. And he said, yeah, I saw one where it says, you know, the NNI is such a cult. Nelson Nash is their cult leader. He can't do anything that Nelson said. And I told him, if NNI is a cult, we are the most internally divided cult that's ever existed. Because, and one little element of distinction there or across the various people is how long-term oriented the policy design is. Because you, we've been to a recent conference where the, the advisor was given a presentation and talking about a policy he had put in force for a client. The client was a real estate investor, 30-some-odd years old, like between 30 and 35, young guy, doing ostensibly well because we had to show the big premium numbers. So he's doing really well. Uh, seven-year term writer. Yeah. Could at pay 30. a high yeah. at 30. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm not going to want to pay a high PUA premium at age 40 <laughs> if I'm a successful. It's like, that's a material difference. 
you know, and it's a symptom that particular case is a symptom of this broader problem where you got these the younger investor types who you know can't think past dinner this weekend, much less the need to resolve the banking problem way down the line in the future when the when the severity is even greater. You know, it's a think long range. There's there's something is failing to translate here between the what can be done with whole life. I mean, I did that article before that there's creative insurance design. You can get fancy with how you pay a premium. And then there's the IBC mm-hmm. and they are different. Well, that particular illustration or policy, you know, is it the end of the world for the guy? No, but it no. was a Frankenstein no. policy. And um, just the, the whole idea that I don't want to pay a premium um, you know, in the unknown future, of course the future is unknown. I don't want to see a big illustration showing all these premiums. Well, doesn't it make it easy for the guys who think short-term and build policies where you can't, in fact, cannot pay a premium beyond four, five, six, or seven years? Yeah, it's a match made in heaven. It's like the blind leading the blind. So, and then when you get online, it's just, do you really, should you, do you even really want to make a decision, a financial decision of any magnitude based on TikTok videos, you know, short term? I mean, I, you know, uh, talked to a guy relatively recently, gone through a process, and then, and then out of the blue, they come up with, well, this should be a 90-10. Young guy, able to pay a premium. You know, what we built was correct, is correct, and he's going to continue. But um, the question is, why would you want that? They can't articulate it. They can't answer it. And then maybe a failure on our part in our process, like ask a few questions about the book, Becoming Your Own Banker. And, you know, the answers were disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. And my, my point here is that – just because somebody says something and just because there's a private Facebook page or just because, you know, the TikTok guru releases four reels or videos a day. I mean, what is the actual content, right? Right. And does that make them um, the person that maybe you want to engage with? And my answer is no. And anytime, every time you violate the four fundamentals of Nelson Nash, you're going to miss the mark. You're not going to do as well as you could have. All right. Number one, think long range. Number two, don't be afraid to capitalize, i.e. pay a premium. Number three is be an honest banker. Right. And then number four is don't do business with banks outside of your checking and savings. And then he added, you know, you have to rethink your thinking. The fifth one in, in every situation, or the majority of the situations where people want to short pay a premium. I mean, and and granted, there are particular cases, you know, individuals and situations where, you know, that may make sense. But that's not the case for the majority at all. And whenever you just can't think long term, um, you're harming yourself in the future and if you're not, if you don't understand why you're harming yourself in the future, you probably shouldn't do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, case after case, it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do after the seventh year? You know, what are you going to do in year nine? 
you know, Mr. Young person, successful, whose income should be rising, right? You're just, you've just compounded the problem because the banking problem does not go away. It is eternal, period. And then your income's going up. And you don't have a place to put it. And then you you have to go start new policies and then go through the startup cost and all that. Is that the end of the world? No, but it could be done better, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know why people do what they do, but this idea that, you know, I, I don't want to pay a premium in the long term and, and company selection doesn't really matter as long as they're, you know, a big four or whatever. And and then the the idea of marketing, you know, you got to have leads if you're a life insurance agent. Where are you going to get your leads, your leads, your leads? And that whole training doesn't convey very well. Whenever, if you want to be an agent, right, if you want to uh, become an agent and you want to practice the infinite banking concepts, two different things, right? You should practice the infinite banking concept and then people want the result of the infinite banking concept. That's what they want. So you don't have to, you know, gin up a, a needs analysis and beat them up with, you know, the traditional 1950s and 70s sales ideas. Yeah. But then that, but the insurance agent that's, you know, going down that road with these IMOs, I see them all the time where, on Facebook where these IMOs are, oh, you get 150% and commissions and you get this and you get that and it's mailbox money and you're just going to sit on the beach and you're going to run an empire. You know, you're going to be a platinum, double platinum, double diamond platinum, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, national leader, national sales director, national sales manager. It's like that really makes for a good presentation. Then you go buy their high price leads using their raggedy sales training and then see how well that goes. When in fact, if you're solving for your banking function, if you're controlling your banking function, that's what people want. And then if you want to go through the whole process of becoming an agent because it's so easy, it's like, by all means, get to it. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah, I don't want to jump over this though, that, that last point about how the short-term thinking, the maximizing cash value as a percentage of premium early on. This term came to me. <laughs> the you know, there's like there's Trump derangement syndrome, right? People hear the name Donald Trump and it just affects them in a some trigger word. Sort of yeah. 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 So I'm calling it the eager investor syndrome. Eager investor syndrome. Yeah. Like I'm so eager to go get that rate of return. Yeah. I'm jumping clean over the cost of dependency on the banker. Only one component of which is the volume of interest lost. Yeah. Right. Not APR. The actual volume of interest is a percentage of the principal. Uh, and then the other problems. Even Paul mentioned, you know, just going to finance a vehicle. And I did. I switched out trucks recently. And you got to go spend four hours just to sit around to handle all the paperwork. Yeah. And then all the forms you got to sign. It's like you keep going. It's It's really... We, we don't account for that. And like you said to Paul, real estate people, but it, entrepreneurial types in general everyone fail to account for their time, the value of their time. Well, the real estate people, you know, and I know it's a broad statement, but, you know, it, it, it's like the crypto investor or the investor or the money manager. You know, they, they're eager, very eager to share, you know, what they did on a particular deal. You know, they made a ton of money on a particular deal, whether it was a 
piece of property, a trade, or whatever. Um, well, let's hear about the other side. You know, let's hear about the two platforms in cryptocurrency that went bankrupt, right? And I mean, I have clients that have lost a tremendous amount of money that they will never recover. Mm. Um, oh, wait a minute. Then if you bought a life insurance policy so you could collateralize it and have cash on cash in year two, three, or four, whatever it is, so you can take the maximum loan so you can go and, you know, buy whatever it is you're going to buy that's going to have this great big rate of return or this great big cash flow. And then when things don't work out, right, you've got a loss there. Now you've got a honking outstanding loan, yeah. right? And, and two, the non-real estate investor, you know, the retiree, the person that's going to, they're coming on, you know, passive income time. Because, and, uh, over the last several years, you know, the solo 401k has been big and the self-directed IRA has been really big. And yeah, who, who wants to be a landlord? I know some people want to be a landlord in their quote unquote retirement years and some don't maybe you do and your spouse doesn't you know it's like every real estate deal is not going to return 20 percent. yeah right? i really like what paul said he's like it you were mentioning potentially getting a second place in florida before you got the recent place you did right and it's like yeah maybe it was just rent and say go for a week or two airbnb rent and he even used the words he's like yeah it comes like becomes like a second profession yeah and yep. it is like the, the idea that we're just going to go be an investor. It's like, it's not a, a buy sell. This is, this isn't buying stock. This is adopting a whole new way of life, a whole new profession. And he even said, I love this too, that when he was transitioning from banking into uh, purchasing and flipping, he wanted 18 months of bill paying ability. Yes. Yep. Okay. That's code for capital needed to have enough capital in order to finance his transition into another form of uh, employment or profession, another yep. kind of income generation. Well, that's the same, That that's true in all cases. If we're gonna transfer out of any line of work into another, there's going to be an interruption in cash flow. I mean, I'm sure it happens for some people where it's just automatic increase in cash flow or the same cash flow the next day. But right. if you're, the, the greater the degree of difference between what you were doing and what you're about to do, the more likely it is that the income is not going to be there right away. And so what is needed in or in the interim is financing. It's capital. It's just another need for capital. You know, he referred to his policy as a tool. It's a tool for doing business deals. It's a tool for retirement in the future. And the tool toolbox thing is a very popular kind of analogy in the world of financial assets and you know just another arrow in the quiver tool in the toolbox you know you you name the metaphor but technically speaking it's just another need for capital and there are many yep. right and it's the cars it's it's everything personal and consumption oriented it's everything production or investment oriented it's the need for capital is everywhere there's certainly really there's a you know, Nelson says that there's capital attracts opportunity. We talked on the past episode about the nature of that attraction. It's not just this fleeting, oh, that person's good looking attraction. It's magnetism. It's it comes. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of finding that uh, opposing energy or that complementary energy that's going to cause that attraction, that magnetism. And one category of opportunity, we always think in terms of investing, well, what should I go do? What's my investment opportunity? What should I go invest in? Do I HELOCs and mortgages, uh, real estate, mailbox? <clears throat> the one category that's missing from that discussion is the entrepreneurial. And 
he mentioned college too, and he's you know uh, black pilled on college and just out on college, and I am too. Oh my gosh, I swipe left. My little brother, you know, out of high school went into trades, doing really well, doing a lot better than a lot of kids his age. Uh, I'm right there with him. Well, all that's got to be financed. You know, it's got yep. the, the the entry into the trades got to be financed. This was related to another question I we wanted to cover is this. You know, oh, this IBC thing, but you know, I'm old or I got underwriting problems or not. I'm perfectly healthy, but I want to do this on my kids. Can I just do it on my kids? It'd be better for them because, and then one of the rationales for that is, well, they're going to, they're going to get married or they're going to have college or they're going to start a business or they need to get a vehicle when they're older and they need to have capital available to finance that. And and, no, and, I mean, but and it's yes, going to I mean, be cheaper on them anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, all that's Thinking fair. And, life insurance, all that's but. fair and good, but at the end of the day, cash value generation on you, <clears throat> on the parent generation, is superior to that of on a child. Right? There are certain implications of policies on minors. No term riders. On minors, so you're not going to achieve the same sort of premium design. You're not going to weight as heavily to the PUA on a policy insuring a minor as you would on a policy insuring an adult. Consequently, cash value growth will be relatively slower. But even worse, not worse than that, more consequential than that is the limit on the death benefit. How much you can get on a minor minor child is restricted to the amount of death benefit on the lesser insured parent, and. Because kids are young and mortality is so low, premium buys a lot of death benefit. So you hit that already low death benefit threshold quickly. So the amount of premium that the industry will let you pay to a policy on a minor isn't very much. And if you're really implementing IBC, it's definitely not enough, right? There needs to be greater ability to pay premium. So the only way to get the ability to pay premium on a minor child anyway, is to have a bunch on the parents in the first place. So that's where the initial cash flow should go, especially if you're just starting. My opinion, unless there's extenuating circumstances, this isn't advice, you should talk to a person. But <laughs> in general... The premium, all else equal, ought to go to the parents' generation first. And then when, look, if the policy were on the minor anyway, the parent's still the owner, okay? Minor under 18 can't own the policy themselves. So you're going to be, the, the parent's going to be the owner anyway when it comes time at 17, let's say, to buy the vehicle uh, or 15 and a half, whatever it is in your state, to buy the vehicle, well, mom and dad's going to be financing that anyway, whether it's coming from a policy loan collateralized by a policy on the child or from a policy loan collateralized from a policy loan on a policy uh, where the where the parent is the insured. Right? It's going it's to come from mom or dad anyway. Um, so the, all that said, I still think there's value to having policies on kids, but I think the premium should be lower. Um and the value is primarily educational, right? You're gonna parents gonna be teaching minor child. This is what premium is. This is what cash value is. This is why we're doing this. Uh, kids gonna reach the age of financial maturity, which the parent determines. 21, 25, 30, 76. I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna get there at some point, and then mom and dad, mom or dad, can transfer ownership of the policy insuring the minor to the now adult kid. Um, and that's their little runway into doing IBC for themselves. So that's where the value is for me for a policy on a minor. But I, th I just think often it's like a form of resistance. It's like IBC is so good. I want to pay a premium, 
but I'm going to do it on the kid. You know, I'm going to do it on me. It's kind of related to another thing. And I have a client, his name's Chris and we're thinking long range. We're talking about 60 years out, uh, 60 years out, age 60 for him, 20 or 25 years out. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to be around then. It's like, okay. I mean, that's cute and fun like, to joke about. Ha ha ha. Probably okay. true. Yeah. But turn around and get there. Yeah. <clears throat> and then might look back and say, well, gosh, I wish I would have maybe acted differently. Um, and statistics, just generally, statistically speaking, we're going to get there. Uh, maybe we don't. Okay, fine. Um, but the likelihood is that we do. So it's okay to think long range. It's okay to plan for that future while being prepared for the worst. But anyway. there, there's a lot there, Mr. Griggs. Yeah, and it's good. Look, look. Let's let's go back to the uh, changing professions, changing careers, changing focus in your uh, entrepreneurial practices. Um, you know, let's say that that changes. Uh, you didn't control the timing of like COVID or snowbid or you know the lockdown of an economy, and you know right after you sold your business or left your profession and going into a new one. How do you look on paper there undercapitalized at the banker, the third party mm. lender? Yeah. Oh, wait, you're going to go borrow money for, you know, whatever equipment, real estate, you know, primary residence. And oh, new profession, huh? Yeah. Ooh. And then it's like, how much? Uh, it's just complete control of the third party lender. They're going to tell you how, how, when, and if, you know. Um, then, uh, you know, talking about the children, there is a proper way to expand a banking system. No question. And I hear often that, well, what about my grandchildren or what about my children? That's just another generation, which is or different requirements for grandchildren, buying policies on grandchildren. Right. There is a proper expansion and it should always start with you. Um, there may be an extenuating circumstance. Oh, you're rated, you're uninsurable. That causes a whole nother yeah, a whole different conversation path to the proper solution, right? <clears throat> um, if you know I'm starting on me, which is rightly so, and I'm married, I have a spouse. I mean, you're the the infinite banking concept. When we are ex exposed to it or embrace it and embrace it, you know, later in life, we've already done a bunch of things. We may have qualified retirement plans, pensions, or whatever that looks like. So the proper integration of the infinite banking concept is necessary, right? I can, with infinite banking, I can uh, complete proper financial planning, proper retirement planning, quote-unquote, proper passive income, right, for me and my spouse, right? The natural expansion, of course, you want to lead the way and show your children, right? Yeah. There are new underwriting requirements. You went through them, you know, as far as the structure of the policy. And 7702 has helped that somewhat because now yeah. it doesn't require as much death benefit, you know, to have a higher cash value. But the uh, – you know, the estate tax implications, if there are any, are not jumped over either. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that it, the infinite banking concept solves them all, but it's not going to accomplish, it shouldn't complicate them, right? And it should improve them. And then, uh, 
you know, the, always the case, well, I'm, I'm too old, however old I am, so it looked better on my children, or I'm diabetic and high blood pressure and overweight and all-American and, you know, whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'm uninsurable. Um, that, you know, just like if you're, if you're potentially rated, which nobody wants to go through underwriting and say, oh, I'm uninsurable or I'm overweight. Well, you know, welcome to America. Right. So it's it's easy to say or to think that, yeah, I should just start on, you know, my child or my grandchild. Nelson's, you know, equipment financing. The guy was 30 years of age. Right. I mean, heck, my youngest son is older than that. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that his policy would look better than mine? You know, just because he's 30 and it's a hard no. And then I like I like the. uh I'm glad that you brought up the fact thinking in timelines, right? So I talk often of 50-year timelines, mm. right? Well, I'm not going to be here. Well, okay, maybe you're not, but your people are. So if we're if we're talking about becoming your own banker and wanting to teach, you know, the next generation or two or three, it it still behooves you to start on yourself. If you look at Nelson's work in becoming your own banker on page 71 and 72 and even distribution of age classes. And you can even apply this to the equipment financing in the same book. You know, Nelson didn't um, finance an automobile. The, the logger didn't finance a truck until the fifth year in equipment financing. All right, well, Nelson in even distribution of age classes started on the grandchild. Right, you can make them more efficient. Their system. I'm not talking about the policies by contortion and doing a 90/10 or an 80/20 or, you know, a seven-year term rider or whatever. I'm not talking about mutilating a policy. I'm talking about laying a proper foundation and making it more efficient. Right, and because, well, James, why do you say that? Well, the guy, the logger, could have financed a car or truck in year two in equipment financing. And then if he would have done so, every number on the right side of that ledger would have went up, i.e. the cash values and the death benefit. Oh, and the future dividends would have went up as well. The same thing applies with the even distribution of age classes. Yeah, You can back that up a generation or two. And then every number on the right side of those ledgers, because now we're talking about multiple policies, every number on the right side of the ledger goes up. Um, I mean, I did a, I uh, got a great client and uh, I got a lots of great clients, but Brian came on, I think last year and talk about family banking, quote unquote, they're doing it. Mm. You know, I mean, they're doing it. He's seen it on, they were practicing family banking anyway. They just didn't have the life insurance, you know, uh, component, didn't know anything about the infinite banking concept because they they finance their vacations and things. So they've been doing that for years. And then when he's seen, you know, the infinite banking concept, he's like, oh my gosh, this was a missing component that makes everything much more efficient and profitable and controllable. So you talk about building an empire. It doesn't happen overnight with your policy or your yeah. family, you yeah. know? So you've got to think long range. Yeah. And it happens a lot where I get it a lot of times where people are looking at becoming your own banker as though it's a roadmap for themselves. And I got to stress to them, I've said it here before, 
that's not what that book was. That the the book is about what the subtitle says, unlocking the infinite banking concept, explaining a concept, teaching a concept. It's not here, here's how you go do it yourself. They're, you know, the structures from policy to policy, they're all different. The 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 initial motivation for doing the policy, it's all different, right? Financing the cars versus financing the logging equipment versus contributing to the grandkids to improve their life. Yeah. Yeah. All the, all these elements are everything. It's all different. It's all illustrative. They're just examples, not meant to narrow or concretize your thinking, but just to illuminate and explain. And one element, one example of that is the idea that, well, when I, if I take a policy loan and I go to make repayments, I got to pay some PUA in order to pay the higher market rate of interest. Like Nelson said, and I'm like, okay, you do that if you want. You, if you want to call the conventional lender and find out what the payment would have been and then make a monthly payment to the principal, the policy loan, and then calculate how much above and beyond that you want to pay in PUA and then set up the monthly draft to authorize that PUA payment. And if, I mean, if you want to go through that for all the purchases, you're the banker, you make the rules, you can, just, you can do that if you want. My view is, at the end of the day, it's the premium that's causing the growth and the cash value and the death benefit. So pay the premium. Right? You say all the time, the problem is the problem. The premium is the solution. Just pay the premium. And then when a need for capital comes along, which it will, you know where to go to get the money to do it. Much simpler. And then, yeah, don't steal the peas, right? Just because we're not getting a conventional loan, just because we are we have total control over the policy loan indebtedness and you get to decide when, if, and how to repay doesn't mean you should not do it, all right? And like just blow it off, do repay it, have an idea in mind of how that loan balance is going to be reduced. You know, we're so used, we've been conditioned in this Wall Street dominated world where loans mean mandatory repayment schedules. And by God, if you don't follow it, then someone's going to come knocking. And there, so there's this uh, punitive kind of attitude where you're going to be punished if you don't adhere to a repayment schedule. And so we're so used to thinking in those terms because we don't want to be punished. And of course not. Well, in IBC land, that's not the way of things, right? We have the ability, the authority, the right to control how those repayments work. And I have clients who do it all sorts of ways. They might do a monthly payment because they want to. They like the idea of money coming out every month, automatic draft, going to the loan balance, and they get to decide how much. They might choose a nice round number. How often do you get nice round numbers in conventional lending? Never. And so they get to choose a nice round number, $100, $200 a month, whatever it might be, given the amount of the loan. Others say, I like the freedom, or maybe I'm Paul Lazell and I've, I'm a real estate investor and cash flow comes in when those deals close and when they close is not uniform. It's not yep. always going to be the same. So when the money's available, then I'll pay down the loan. He even talked about doing certain deals. And in his mind, he's earmarking the profit from that particular deal for a certain kind of payment to the company. He was talking about PUA payment, but there's no reason that couldn't have been policy loan repayment. Right? And, every, and we get, we have the ability, the authority, to do that in the world of IBC. And so my thing to people is like, use that, you know, and you're going to develop the, I talked with clients a lot about there is an intellectual or a theoretical understanding, which you can get by reading the book and talking to an advisor and watching podcasts and watching Nelson and all that. And then there's an experiential level of understanding that you only get when you're paying premium and taking policy loans and repaying them. And it's in that experiential world where 
you'll discover what your actual preferences are for things like policy loan repayment. I have people who, and I don't understand this, but God bless them, they like quarterly. That's just what, one couple in particular I'm thinking of, he's a carpenter and he gets paid on some strange schedule. And so once every quarter, there's an abnormally high uh, uh, income payment, yep. and so they make their you know if the if it's possible with the lender, which life insurance and life insurance it is, that's when they'd like to make their payments. Perfect, you can do that. You get to do that. So exercise that. And then about the all this comes back to Nelson what you're talking about with equipment financing, and he could have financed earlier. Yeah, he also could have paid more PUA later. Right, the the big old twenty five grand in PUA is happening in illustrations one through five in the first four years. In illustration six, it's going out to year five. It could have went longer. Uh, why not? And then uh, in some examples, there the the dividend is assumed to be covering the base. Well, what if he had paid that out of pocket and let the dividend continue to go back into the policy? Oh, everything gets bigger. And so there's not like. Don't my encouragement is don't read becoming your own banker as though that's what you have to do exactly. Understand that Nelson's trying to show you the various ways you could do it. And he even explains that explicitly when he talks about policy loans. He assumes that the passive cash flow late in life for the logger is funded with either uh, pulling the dividend or partial surrenders, withdrawing the dividend or partial surrenders. And doesn't have to be that way. And he talks about how instead, if he were an advisor today and talking to his client, he would tell him to use a policy loan. Uh, same with the CD scissors and the financing of the vehicle. It's done with, with, with surrenders and not a loan. There's no loans in there uh, in CD sisters. Uh, so it's not meant to be a hard and fast rule book, though there are some rules. You mentioned the four. It's meant to illuminate the idea and then how you go and do it is how you go and do it. But one, there are certain commonalities. Another of which is the idea that if it's a good thing to pay a premium today, it's going to be a good thing to pay a premium in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, and one little tie in too with the kids, the greatest, um, magnification effect the greatest amplification or multiplier effect in anything in finance outside of wall street is in the relationship between a premium dollar and death benefit right that's where the greatest magnification of purchasing power happens so in the context of well do i pay a premium to me or do i pay a premium to a policy on my kid you know, we talked about the restrictions as far as death benefits concerned. We talk about the necessary, the implied restrictions as far as premium is concerned. We talked about the design restrictions as far as not being able to use term riders is concerned. But one other element of it is all that death benefit on your life is nothing but future premium for that child. And so, you know, why not more of that? Or loan right? repayment. Right? Or loan. Yeah, yeah. it's going to go somewhere. It's additional capital to your people. Yes. And if you've laid the foundation, led the way, and, you know, your children have embraced it or your grandchildren have embraced it, you're, you're just uh, expanding your family's banking system. Mm -hmm. I mean, no question about that. 
And notice how this all integrates together, right? Just like with the investment versus capitalization conversation, should I pay a premium versus should I go invest? No, no, it's both. You don't, it's not either or, it's and. Uh, those, they integrate together. But just in the same sense, this conversation about adults, policies on adults versus policies on kids, it all comes together, right? It's better to have more efficient cash value accumulation on the parental generation anyway. It's more, it, it, there's a increase in the magnitude of the intergenerational capital transfer when you've got more death benefit on the elder generation anyway. You can't get as much as you would want to get to solve for your need for finance on the minor generation alone anyway. Right. All of this comes together and the result is a properly structured system for you and your family. And then I would throw in there, too, for the parent generation, it's OK for mom and dad, the grandparent generation to have coverage. And very often I'm, and I'm having more and more of those conversations with clients. Uh, you know, oh, why, why don't I, why, why not get some on mom or dad? Yes. Best question of the day. Yeah. Why not do that? Yeah. Are they insurable? I mean, what, what, yeah, if it's possible, let's do it, right? And it's not a, people think that there's like an implication that that's like insidious, you know, oh, insuring mom and dad because they're older. It's like, look, God's going to call us all home anyway. And at the, and it's all going to roll downhill, right? That, that cash, the, the death benefit on the eldest generation, Whatever it is, the grand, the great grandparent, the grandparent, or the parent generation, all that death benefit is eventually going to serve the youngest generation anyway, and then the younger ones thereafter. That, like you say, we haven't seen, probably won't meet. But that's all where it's going, and so why not pile it on at that elder generation first? And then supply, just like you're talking about the guy who's doing family financing, lending to one another within a family. All they needed to add was a life insurance component. You know, it's okay for the adult child, the, you know, the 19, 20, 21 year old to borrow money from mom or dad, who in turn get it from the insurance company to go and do whatever, uh, trade school or a car or a business or travel for you, yeah, whatever. Just think that through and the loan repayments and and uh and i'll tie in and expand on your comments too as far as premium and going through the idea of uh additional interest quote unquote which is additional premium to the company which is which is additional capital to your system but if you're practicing that within a family bank <clears throat> um and I've got lots of uh, examples where parents have financed houses for their children, right, or whatever, uh -huh. automobiles. And the children are actually paying uh, interest above what the life insurance company, what the life insurance company is charging the parents. And then if you uh, potentially just walk through the pushback on that, you know, this additional interest going into a policy as premium more capital to the system. That's not the only thing that that particular generation is going to finance. And this additional premium is buying additional death benefit of whom they're the beneficiary of, the future recipient of, right? Oh, and it's increasing future dividends. And the dividends are increasing the death benefit. So this, because uh, there's generally some pushback when the, you know, the second or third generation is like, well, why do I got to pay interest? So like, well, you know, have expand your thinking, right? And and this is why you would, right? And then you can't go anywhere in the free world and get a loan from a third party lender, uh, financial institution without a loan repayment or without paying interest. 
So, you know, um, but well, I like the, the, there's a time value of money <laughs> in every period. financial transaction. Yeah. Period. Yeah. And to say why do I have to pay interest is to imply yeah. that there's no value exactly. In, <laughs> there's no temporal value to money, like meaning when you have the use of it, right? If you have a use of the money now, the use alone is of value, right? In addition to the money itself. So that's a, to defy that, to say, oh, I don't want to pay interest. It's like, okay, you're shaking your fist at God. I mean, that you're, do that all you want. It's, it's not going to, the consequences won't be good. There's going to be interest. Now, do, do people want to pay any more in interest than they should? Of course not, right? Do we want to pay the kind of interest that you pay in terms of the volume expresses a percentage of the principal like you do in an amortized mortgage or other structured debt or even in an unstructured debt like a credit card? No, right? We want to pay just as much an honest amount to account for the time value money. And the best approximation of an honest amount of the time value of money is the interest rate on a policy loan. And that you should want to pay that. I see all day, because uh, we can see the internal, so you get reports on the, for the, the agent, their advisor does for the clients, you know, when they have loans outstanding. And you can go in and calculate, you know, what the interest rate by volume was. And so long as I've made this point before, I don't have to get into it here, but so long as there are some repayments during the year, the actual interest, the true cost of borrowing, the interest rate as, as, as an expression of the volume of interest in percentage terms relative to the principal and the loan, that interest rate is always, and it will always, and I can prove it theoretically, will always be lower than the nominal rate on the loan at the company. And so I know you had mentioned this with Paul, the investors, they always want to compare the rates and man, that just wears me out. Uh, the rate conversation, mm -hmm. you know, 2.89, 3.37, whatever it's APR. It's it, you know, uh, something made up by academics, alleged consumer advocates who earn a salary alleged. from the government. Okay. <laughs> that most professors do because most universities are state funded and the ones that are private they're funded by government loans. So it's all one way or the other, except for like one of the handful of schools that are fully private, don't accept any government money of any kind, like a Hillsdale or whatever. So you got government people advocating for the consumer mm -hmm. with the truth and lending act, right? Cause the Patriot act was so patriotic and this inflation reduction act that's oh around gosh. right now is so deflationary. Yeah. I think, I think all of the, I think relatively recently people are like becoming keenly aware of whatever, the title of the bill is the exact opposite. Is the opposite true. is the case every time. Yeah, the it's Pension Protection Act. Oh yeah, you know it's all the, the opposite. Deficit Reduction Act. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. Just pick one. <laughs> but it's been that way for a hundred years. This is nothing new. I think people are just now starting to say or see. Yeah, you know, well, you can't can't miss it. You can't not see it. Right. Well, so, so just a, just take that thinking and apply it back further. Yeah. It applies to the truth in air quotes yeah. truth and lending act sure. too. Right. The, the APR does not express what a normal person, a thinking person think, uh, imagines, thinks of, conceptualizes when they think of interest. This 2.89 is not the percentage of the principal that you're paying in interest. It's not what it is. The, the volume of the interest is in the formula that determines APR. So you got to disaggregate all that. You can go through all that if you want to, or you just take all the payments, add them all up. 
subtract out the cash price of the item that you purchased. The difference is the actual interest cost. Make sure origination and closing costs and all the other fees, interest by other names is in there. And then take that and divide it into the principal borrowed. And there's your interest rate by volume, your true cost of borrowing. And on an amortized mortgage, it's insane and it's only going to get worse. And on other structured notes, it's the same. It's bad. It's a, uh, on the truck, you know, vehicles, another one. By the way, the longer the repayment period, the worse it is. Yeah. Okay? And what's been happening to auto loans? You know, oh, you used to, the, the most you get is a five-year note. Well, now you can get a seven-year note. Well, sure. Banker loves that, right? They're going to collect your little interest payments, bleed you dry by a thousand paper cuts over as long as the government <laughs> will let them. Right? No wonder they're having car. And now the, the price of home, this will happen, by the way. Mark my words. The housing is so dang expensive that just you wait. There will be a 40-year mortgage and a 50-year mortgage. Right? That will happen. Britain used to have indefinite duration government bonds. They may even still have. I don't know if it's, but uh, I know it was a thing in the past. A hundred-year bond, right? Payable over a hundred years. Well, sure. You know the bankers love that. Um, anyway, true interest rates, right? APR. The the the, in, the investor getting caught up in the rates. Yeah, and it's. I, I like the uh, exhibit one. I was looking for it. page fifty-six, becoming your own banker. When you know Nelson submits that as an exhibit, the. Uh, uh, Associates finance sheet, one page sheet for the uh, financing of the trucks, the logging trucks. And there's no interest rate stated anywhere on there. You know, and he's like, well, if a businessman can't calculate the interest, he has no business being in business. But you do that simple math and, and it just, he clearly draws it out the rate versus the volume. Yeah. Uh, that is the image of the, the idea of the scales dropping from the eyes. Mm hmm. You know, to see that, yeah, and then to compare the two numbers, yeah. I uh, I don't want to jump over, or you know, I'm not jumping over, but I don't want to leave the, uh, you know, when you made the comments about if you want to if you want to repay the loans and the interest, and you want to go through all that, you can do that. Yeah, it's like the additional interest is premium. You know, it, it once you go through the all of the calculations that you know, we typically go through when we are first exposed to this idea and we're actually capitalizing systems and it's like they're real dollars because they're yours. Um, you know, I, I know I penciled every loan for the first four years mm. and then, cause I'm, I'm waiting for the hammer to drop, you know, what's wrong with this? And you know, where's the hole? Where's the fallacy? Where's, um, then that, you know, I discovered the deeper you look, the better it looks, yeah. you know, cause the better it is because you're looking and you see more. Anyway, um, I quickly got to the point where I don't really care. You know, <laughs> I know what the insurance company is charging me and I know how to calculate, you know, rates and volumes and all of that. And then it became an absolute race in time, right? Because we're sitting here aging in this conversation, right? Is to pay a premium because it, it, the premium is the, these policies are built to a for a premium to be paid and we should be continually stretching ourselves not to the point where we're buying contorted policies to go cash on cash in year one because you really shouldn't be paying that high of a premium right um, I'm not talking about that I'm talking about systematically on purpose with intent paying more and more premium 
and using up my insurability or trying to get to that goal of being fully insured before I'm uninsurable because it happens suddenly. Mm-hmm. Ratings happen suddenly. Oh, I got preferred on my whole life, James. What do you mean I'm table B or C? Well, you know, you got a thing called medical records. And the underwriters looked at it. Yeah. And what your doctor may tell you is may or may not be what's in those damn may documents. Or may not match the medical records. But and, and so that was kind of liberating for me. Whenever I'm just my my sole focus, you know, should be directed at not penciling, uh, but I'd already done enough of that to to be okay, right? And to yep. Yeah, and of course, I got to hear Nelson two or three times a year too. And that never hurt that didn't live, hurt. Yeah. right? Um, to paying a premium, and then the opportunities do appear, and then just my ability to recognize an opportunity greatly increased. And it took me time to look back and see that. It's like, oh, that's something I probably would have done then, but now that I have the capital, and I would I wouldn't do that now. You know, not mm. every deal's a deal walking down the street. Okay, so if the if the and you and you you know pointed out, look if the if the life insurance is charging me one rate. And I then, therefore, can legitimately practice velocity. How many times can a dollar turn over in my personal economy? How fast can I pay that loan back? That's just velocity. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to actually pay their stated rate in every loan situation. I'm not. Right. You know, And at the end of the day, I don't even care. Because as I pay interest, I'm paying interest, policy loan interest, directly to the life insurance company. It's a mutual company. I'm a policyholder. I'm part owner of the company. Tell me which one of your companies do you want to underfund or to force <laughs> to be less profitable or force into a position where they have to make, you know, unrealistic investments, right? You, of course, you want your company to be, and I do too want your company to be profitable. I am okay with every life insurance policy that I own, the, the issuer of that, that life insurance company that issues those policies. I want them to be profitable. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go out and make a loan uh, for no reason just so I can pay interest. I'm not doing that. But when I am borrowing their money, collateralized by my cash value, I want to pay them an interest. But I don't want to pay them one more red dime than I should. And I don't want to have a bunch of outstanding loans. And then and let me, you know, touch on that as well. You know, I have seen over the years where uh in you know, we if I if I'm gonna pay a premium, I don't care what it is, a thousand, ten thousand, hundred, I don't care what the number is, I'm gonna pay a premium, but I have stretched myself or endured such a sales presentation that that number is too big. Therefore, I immediately must borrow or collateralize that cash value because I shouldn't have paid that premium in the beginning. It's wrong, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so now I've created an outstanding loan. And then it, what am I going to do that for year two? Am I going to do that for the first four, five, or seven years? Right? Okay. And then this, and I'm, this idea of having an outstanding loan uncontrolled is ludicrous, right? Yes, you can pay it back on your own terms, but it should be paid back, okay? So I see these 
I see a lot, but I'm just saying some of these you're like, well, I don't think I've got what Nelson was talking about. And it's, yeah, crystal clear that you didn't. And, you know, how are you going to address that $300,000 outstanding loan you got there? Well, I did that to, you know, buy cryptocurrency or, you know, I did a HELOC. I've got leverage over there and leverage here. You know, how are you going to pay the next premium? Like, where is all this money? Well, you know, I got wherever it went. Mm-hmm. It's um, no, it's okay to start too small and expand right that's okay too but just you know be honest with yourself and whomever you're working with right so that makes me think of uh, oh sorry i don't want to cut you off i'm just saying outstanding loans you know premium has priority but not it it, premium is premium is premium and and in my opinion it takes priority over loans but not at the expense of an outstanding loan that's uncontrolled. And this idea that you're going to sell your business, you're going to buy policies and borrow against them to create a place to put future money, it's legitimate. You know, I've done it, talked about it. But that is not every case, right? What if your business doesn't sell? What if you had, what if you just purchased a business right before COVID? You went and got all geared up and financed, and then COVID, not COVID, the governmental controls of the free market Good distinction, yeah. decimated the business. How many times? I just learned this morning that a local businesses ceased to exist last week, right? This is, you know, after the lockdowns, they couldn't recover. Couldn't recover. You know, and I'm thinking on the way, you know, I stopped at a cleaner's on the way in and had a conversation with the lovely lady. Um and so we're talking about that. And so it's about a four minute drive from there to here. In those four minutes, I'm thinking, how many businesses mm. closed down yesterday, last week, last month because of the effects of the the shutdowns? Right. And I don't think it's over yet. No. And it all goes to capitalization. They were all undercapitalized, every one of them. So yep, loans are good if they're used properly or they're for legitimate purposes uncontrolled outstanding loans right where there's no loan repayment i'm not paying any interest oh and i'm going to reduce my premium to the bare minimum you're just creating a future problem Mm -hmm. and you know there's lots of examples out there you know you got these illustrations where you have outstanding loans into your 70s or 80s and then you're going to sell your business and it's magically going to repay all those loans yeah, what happens if your business doesn't sell? Oh, you got an outstanding, horrendous capital call in the year that policy lapses because the IRS is saying, hey, all of those loans you took out above your basis, that's taxable this year because the policy lapsed because you didn't pay a premium or you didn't pay any interest. You didn't make any loan repayments. Yeah. Yeah, where's that on the illustration? Yeah. yeah. The, the whole idea of going to have to use the policy now thing uh, – Somebody said this to me recently. I really liked it. He said, um, much of your position in society is determined by the time span between stimulus and response. And think about that. Now, sometimes that's not the case, right? If you got your hand on a hot stove, you better get that sucker off. But in other cases, and it, it relates, it pertains very closely to what you said, you know, not every deal that comes your way is a good deal. 
And I think a lot of times people who are just becoming capitalized for the first time, it's like coming up for air. It's like, oh my gosh, like how do I find land? And they got to learn that process of, of literally of orienting themselves to where they want to go. But I love that. Just breathe the air. It's okay. Just yeah. I'm coming up for air. Perfect. Get fully refreshed. It's yeah. okay to be properly capitalized. <laughs> That's a, just think of that. Mm. Oh, wait, I'm properly capitalized. Well, when's the last time that happened for you? Embrace that. Love it. Embrace it for a while. Mm-hmm. You don't have to immediately, you know, go do the next deal. Yeah. And we have enough on our hands with just taking care of the main mundane things that come our way, the cars and trips and all that. Uh, and but getting back to that idea of, you know, orienting yourself after you've appreciated what you're doing. Oh, my gosh. Cash value and premium. And yes, the dividend got paid. And yes, the uh, the uh, the and the uh, policy report, the annual report came at the end of the year. And sure enough, that value is there and uh, it's working and it's you orient yourself to this and become sort of uh, integrated in this new well-capitalized lifestyle, then comes the process of more proper classification, determining what a, what an opportunity actually looks like. Yep. Um, I mean, I've shared with you, I've gone through that myself. You know, it's, it goes back to that intellectual versus experiential thing. There is some stuff that you're just not going to know until you do it. <laughs> and one of them is like, you gave the camper example a while back where you could go to the RV show. Yep. And everything was too expensive the first time you went. Come back years later, been practicing, got cash value. Suddenly you can get whichever one you want, and that desire fades away. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> it was gone. Yeah. Well, that, and, you know, and I've noticed that in myself because I'm pretty charismatic and like rah, rah, go get them, you know, enthusiastic and all that and i get an idea in my head it's oh i'll go do this and i can do that with it and make it great and the value on the other end of the side is going to be really good and all that's true right it's all yes 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 and yes that is still not sufficient justification to go do the thing you know just because some uh, investor education group says, you know, their average return is 10%, you know, year on year or whatever, and 10% is higher than five that the insurance company is charging. That all could be true. That doesn't mean you go do it, right? What are we leaving out? Well, the value of the opportunities that you're not aware of yet, right? The value of the opportunities that will only come once you reach a certain level of capitalization. You know, I go back to that uh, accredited investor thing as just an example, Certain things are off the table to you because the IRS or the SEC says so because you don't have the financials to prove that you're smart enough to do it. I mean, how paternalistic <laughs> and condescending is that? But the- and, oh, wait, that shows up in the marketing. Now, you know, you're an accredited investor, Mr. Griggs. It's like not everybody. This is exclusive. You're somebody special. You're an accredited investor. Look at this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So, and then people do that. They market to these quote unquote high net worth no people. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it's a whole nother uh, rabbit hole marketing trap to fall down if you want to. <laughs> so there's there's all sorts of things that look and feel a lot like opportunities. Yeah. But are the vast majority of them are not. I mean, when's the last, you know, I mean, seriously, when's the last time you've been properly capitalized? All right. And then how long did it take you to get there? Right. I I see, uh, talk about marketing and traps. You know, 
I know, you know, if you look at like Facebook or, you know, online stuff too long, the algorithm will just feed you that stuff mm-hmm. over and over. Mm-hmm. I seen one a couple of months ago by one of the marketers, it's just an online marketing company or individual, a charismatic online marketer. Everybody on the internet knows who they are. And it's like, well, if you have $300,000 cash, you're an accredited investor, we can give you a $60,000 annualized rate of return. Wow, 20%. Really? 12 months. I mean, who's backing that up, Mr. TikTok professional? I mean, Mr. <laughs> you know, Digital Professional? It's like, just because they say it doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. And then, you know, the, uh, the idea of even going to Florida and buying a, a – a, a second home, vacation home, whatever, you know, Airbnb, a rental, whatever. It's like, you know, I love Florida. Beautiful beaches. Um, I'm only going to go once. Maybe I don't, I mean, my girls like it better than I do. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, how often are we going to go? Right. You know, I don't, I don't need another revenue stream of income that's, you know, eight states away and I've got to potentially fly or drive through eight boot jacks to get there if they decide to lock anything down. You know yeah. what I mean? And then pay the, you know, which I don't mind. I'm a capitalist. I don't mind paying people, you know, uh, the property manager and, you know, just thinking five states away. Nah, I'm, I'm not really interested. I'll just go down there and rent one with somebody else and help that capitalist be profitable mm-hmm. and be perfectly okay with that. Yeah. Like, I, I, I know I'll speak for myself, but I think it's a tendency that's out there more general, more generally is this idea, you know, we're constantly looking outward and we feel like we've got to go find something, yeah. go do something, go be somewhere different, somewhere better, better positioned, all this rather than looking inward and asking, what am I good at? What am I natural? Where's my natural inclination? What what am I attracted to? What do I like doing? How could I do something uh, that's profitable that falls within what I like? That you uh, know that reminds me of the book, the uh, Acres of Diamonds, in <clears throat> the Prodigal Son. Mm. You know, I got to go out there because this is terrible. It's it is it's it's prodigal. It's it the prod. It's that's exactly what it is. I've been guilty of it. Exactly. It's wanting to go at it. The, the answer's out there in the world, and I mean that desire and craving for a sense of adventure. I think is legitimate, but so often it is distracting and misguiding, and just takes us off from that straight and narrow. Um, when the answer is right there, if we would just sit peacefully. Um, and look inward. Be still. And, and yeah, yeah, you know what's I? I love Jerry's example because I would have never thought of it. You know, buying a forty thousand dollar laser and engraving stuff, like, and so much business that he didn't want to do all of it. Like, who would have thought of that? You know, the and, manufacturers like Jerry called him up. Uh, he might have said it. Uh, I don't. I don't recall if he did say it on the episode or not. But the manufacturer called him up. So the manufacturer got a huge order. You know, uh, a product, finished product, not for the lasers, but for the product that the lasers would produce, mm. right? And the manufacturer's like, oh, yeah, yeah. And so whoever needed, it was a huge order. They're calling the manufacturer because then the manufacturer would know who has the lasers and who can do it, right? So the the laser manufacturer calls Jerry and says, hey, man, they've got this big order. Um, it's a really sweet deal. And, you know, you're the first one I thought of. And Jerry's like, yeah, no, I don't want it. 
and the manufacturer's like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I don't want to work that hard. And then he did not. I know he didn't. I won't tell it here. But there is much more to the financing of that uh, laser than what he shared with us. And it was beautiful. And it all boiled down to uh, it happened the way he wanted it to happen because he's his own banker. Yeah. It was uh, that's probably a carrot, but I'm just telling you, he, there's a lot that he could have went into that he didn't. He was very reserved, all right? And it was very good anyway, so I'm not, you know, saying you missed something. There was just more he could have shared. Maybe I'll have him back. Yeah, I, I too, I like hearing from clients, you know, what they did. You know, I don't often ask. They'll just tell me casually, and I, sure. I, I really appreciate it. Like, I like, it's like, yeah, you know, I'm selling, I had one yesterday. He's selling his, selling a condo, at a, like a vacation spot, and he's like, "Yeah, I've got a place to put that. Like, and I'll, I'll use it to pay off some loans and pay the premium." And I'm like, "There you go." You I know? think I brought it up, but a gentleman, a younger guy, and you know, somewhere in the uh, the timber country, you know, in the south east. It's like he works with a bunch of financial guys that are always broke. And he's probably the workhorse of the whole operation. And he buys some uh, raw land that had already been harvested, right? And whom he, the guy he bought it from, that's what he does. He buys timberland, harvests the timber, and then does the next deal. And he wanted to do the next deal, and he needed a lot of capital. So he had to sell this piece of property, a couple hundred acres that had already the timber had already been harvested from. You know, the young banker friend, client, he's like, he finances that deal, right? Mm-hmm. Whether part or whole, whether he financed a down payment or whatever he did. And then he goes and finances a bulldozer straight out of, you know, his cash values. And then he improves that property, puts a road in, throws some gravel around, throws some gates up. And he had to repair, he had to repair the, uh, the bulldozer, all right? And he sells the property and makes a, a phenomenal return. Right? And then he sells the bulldozer and makes a <laughs> phenomenal return on the bulldozer. I thought he was going to do that stuff anyway. Yeah. Right? It's like, hmm, where do you put that on the life insurance illustration? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's on the supplemental page. Maybe it shows up on his children's policies somewhere. Mm. You know? Anyway. Yeah, there's that, I, that, that a more fundamental idea embedded in that like the idea of investing or entrepreneurship or opportunity as and we hear the term all the time value creation i think it's a often like overused generic nobody really knows what that means but as opposed to the idea the the contrasting idea of speculation i'm just going to buy something do nothing wait and the value is going to go up and that's going to work out for me the two contrasting ideas, right? Take on the one hand, like the client you just mentioned, someone who who takes things and makes physical material improvements, puts a road on the raw land, causes the bulldozer to actually operate, right? Makes it literally more useful, more valuable to somebody else. That greater value, which is a function of the greater usefulness, means that the individual can charge a higher price for it. So that high price, less the cost he used to get the thing that wasn't working in the first place, that difference is his gain, his profit, right? His reward for participating in that opportunity. Whereas over here in conventional finance, 
On the other hand, you know, oh, just go buy the stock. Just, you know, the government makes it easy for you. Do your 401k contribution. It'll all be better for you. Everyone's doing it anyway. It's free money. You know, it's, it, it's such an indulgence of the, of the, of complacency of get something for nothing. That's exactly of, what it is. Yeah. I'm going to, I just want to throw money at it and I don't want to do anything. So I'm going to get something for nothing. I'll be rewarded for having the capital if it all goes well. Yeah. It's something for nothing. And we eat that up and, and then you get someone who's like, well, I don't know whether I'd like to pay a premium or keep contributing to my tax qualified plan. And this is an investment advice. I'm not an investment advisor. So talk to your people, but um, <laughs> you compare, I mean, can, I mean, think of it in, that, in those terms, like where would the money rather go? Especially if you're under 59 and a half, you know, not to mention the fact that you can't borrow against the value of a tax qualified plan. You can only take from it which will interrupt whatever growth was there. It wasn't compounded in the first place because of the business cycle, but that's all just well, added. The markets only go one way. Yeah. Yeah. Tell that to the S&P 500 this yeah. year, huh? <laughs> and then, uh, well, you know, that's why you got to get a higher rate of return and you got you to take more risk, right? So you'll be rewarded to, to compensate for inflation and taxation and... Oh, it's a compelling story when you don't know the other side or the truth. Yeah. I mean, people are, and no wonder, you know, it's only 12 to 16 to 20 years of indoctrination through state uh, education camps. But the idea that one ought to, should, could possess the purchasing power, the capital, the ability to go out and manifest your own creativity in the world in the form of doing something with a piece of property that you know something about, whatever it might be, lasers, bulldozers, real estate, whatever, that whole possibility is presented as though it's something that's, you know, only for the select few, like some aristocratic elite, that they're the ones that can go be entrepreneurial. No, they're just they're the ones who are capitalized. They're the ones who are able. And so the things I have another client, one of my first ones, uh, Worried about the, and of course he has been borne out since this, but uh, maybe 17 or 18, he was worried about the food supply chain. Hmm. And so he took a policy loan and built like a $30,000 hydroponic garden in his backyard. Really? Yeah. To grow his own food. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, did you find that in one of these invest investment hacker books? No. Like it's the, the, and it really is. I don't, I don't think I talk about it enough, but coming up for air, orienting yourself, discovering what it is to, to learn what is a good deal and what's not just because you can do it. Doesn't mean you should like the, just because you have capital doesn't mean it needs to go be all collateralized tomorrow to squeeze out every dime of productivity, right? Allow space for the unknown. You know, that that is your, that's your superpower. It's your secret weapon, you know, for the unknown, when the unknown comes. And in today's monetary environment, not to mention foreign policy environment, there's plenty of it. And so, and this is where I was going with this earlier, is like this idea that I got to go squeeze every dime of policy loan out of the company that I can, yeah. is like, okay, go ahead and do that. Paul made a great point, a great economic point. Never before have interest rates doubled 
in one 12-month period. That is so insightful. I don't think people really grasp the the effect that this monetary tightening is going to have right and by the way people who are interested in the economic stuff put those dang news articles down go to the fed (laughs) go to the federal reserve's website read their press release and if you really want to know what's going on click on the button that says read the implementation note the implementation note states specifically what the new policy changes will be how the different uh interest rates will change but then importantly, what the Fed's going to do with the assets on its own balance sheet. Come September of 2022, there will be huge increases. I think it's double or a 50% increases in the, um, in the amount of bonds or mortgage-backed securities that are on the Fed's balance sheet that they're going to start letting roll off. Right? This is, a, relatively speaking, historically speaking, a dramatic escalation in the lowering of the rate of new money production, right? There will still be new money production. Uh, you can't tell a counterfeiter to stop, so they'll keep going. <laughs> but the rate at which they're doing it is going to come way down. And relatively speaking, it's it's substantial. It's already been substantial just this year. And so you've already seen corrections in things like the tech firms, right? You've already seen certain corrections in certain industries, and there's theoretical reasons for that. But by all appearances, there's more coming. And unless now, of course, the reason that economic forecasting is literally impossible is because it's all run by committee. So it's totally arbitrary. It's up to men and women sitting in a dark room somewhere. Uh, so you can't predict them, you know, unless you're unless you know what their stock portfolio is. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Paul Pelosi. Um <laughs> But for the rest of us, we don't know. So it's hard. So all we can say is hypothetically, right, if this continues and it just appears that it will continue and it, the the rate of tightening has been increasing. The rate of new money growth has been falling. Uh, you could look at M1, for instance. You can go to the St. Louis Federal Reserve FRED, F-R-E-D system and look at things like M1 or M2 different money supply statistics there's an austrian one called the true money supply i'm working on putting together a a thing to make it available so people can look at a more theoretically coherent money supply statistic but you can go look at these statistics and you can tell the system look don't just tell me what the level is right now or what the change is from last month tell me what the change has been year on year right the change this month as opposed to the change in the month 12 months prior that's what matters Right, and if, if that line is downward sloping, and I'm willing to bet it is, that's tightening, and it's going to come. I was telling a client on Facebook a couple months ago, like if they keep up with this, you're going to start hearing about mortgage companies that are hiking uh, their residential mortgage rates. Uh, you know it's happening on commercial debt. Like Paul was talking with this, you know, private lenders tightening because they're worried because they're getting their money from a lender anyway, right? They're just another banker middleman. So that's going to cascade through so long as this tightening aspect continues. And when that does, the more expensive price of money, the more expensive price of credit will will manifest as decreased demand for the purchase of these various credit intensive assets like real estate, like homes, but like other things, machinery and whatnot that that tighter demand will cause a a fall in prices and it's going to be they'll call it a well unless you're biden who 
can't talk, God bless him, but he won't call it a recession, but everybody else will, right? And we'll it'll just be a, change the definition of recession. All right. It'll, so there will be an acute price correction mm-hmm. in various industries. Uh, and for a lot of people who are undercapitalized, which is virtually everyone, that'll be really unfortunate. But for the people who are well capitalized, it looks a lot like a sale. And it's okay to be the one who has access to a lot of money when the things you want to buy go on sale. And so this idea that I need to pay a premium to build high cash value to go take a maximum loan so that I'm fully collateralized, I'm making my money work for me, I'm squeezing, wringing out every dollar of purchasing power I can. Okay, well, that who is more likely to miss out on the sale? Hmm. Hmm. So it's okay to be liquid. The guy waiting for crypto to bounce back? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I'm just... But it, my point is, it's okay to be liquid. Yeah. It's okay to have a whole lot of cash value sitting there. It's okay to be able to take a policy loan, know that you can take a policy loan, and choose not to, because you've got certain expectations about the future. And let that work out for you once or twice, and then come talk to me again and see how different your thinking is. Right? It'll be it's transformative. You don't even have to be a market timer. So it's going to happen. You know, you, you want to get into the winds and, the, you know, expansion, the rate of the expansion or the rate of the uh, deacceleration of the money printing. Yeah, that's an, it like, will it happen. It is going to happen, period. You know, you can just become a little bit more accurate, you know, when you do. Yeah. <laughs> Zoom in as you get closer and closer. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I don't care. You know, it's going to have fractional reserve banking causes the business cycle, period. If you want to argue about that, it's an economic debate, but I think it's well unsettled. There is a business cycle. Even the Keynesians, God bless them, who couldn't care about theory at all, uh, acknowledge that there are recessions and depressions. They happen. And what that means is that... They just happen. (laughs) Yeah. What that means is that durable... Uh, durable consumer goods like real estate, durable production goods like equipment used to build other stuff tends to go on sale every five to 10 years. Okay. So do you want to be well capitalized and in a position to buy at that point or not? Hmm. Well, if you do, then maybe it's a really bad idea to go squeeze out every policy loan dime you can. Maybe it's okay to, I talk about this with my clients all the time, maybe it's okay to think like a banker, to think in terms of prospective future cash flows. Maybe it's okay to be prepared now for when that happens, when that happens, not if. And the people who do that will be better off, period. They always are, right? It, it all comes back to this idea of foregone gratification. And it's the, Nelson talks about the Matthew principle. To those who have, more will be given, that is that that spiritual truth manifests in this way. That's one way it manifests. Yeah, yeah. So be the one who has in order to receive more. You know, all I'm hearing is like pay a premium, and then don't try to be a market timer. I mean, it's not all I'm hearing, but it's uh, it's okay to pay a premium. The premium is a solution. Period. Yeah, all these implications are not like immediately obvious in Nelson, but the seed is all there, right? Mm-hmm. It's arrival syndrome. It's uh, Parkinson's law, mm-hmm. right? We don't have to know everything, 
Right? We can embrace the uncertainty, the unknown future. We can understand that things are going to change and the landscape of opportunity is going to be different. We can accept that and sit with that and surrender to that. And then we can accept that, yeah, Parkinson's law is a real thing. Expenses tend to rise. So that, that's all we're talking about here. I've got increased capital, so I need to go out and use every dollar. By gosh, you are a victim of Parkinson's law because yep. you can't help but keep that expenditure down below your spending ability. All right. Nelson talks about expenses rising and then you say exceeding income. You could take that. You could take a derivative of that and talk in terms of capital. The more capital you have, the more I got to go out and spend. No, you don't. It's a manifestation. So there's a legitimate sense in which these guys talking about 1090, go out and build all this cash value to go everything. There's a real sense in which they are displaying what it looks like to be a victim of Parkinson's law. Because the opposite is to enjoy that increased ability to purchase without needing to go use it, right? And then you choose and you develop. That's this orientation process, this learning process of when do I take a, a, a deal? What does a good, what is really a good deal for me, right? It's not, is the rate of return positive, right? That's not, that's not the evaluation. The evaluation is what's the opportunity cost, what could the return have been had I done something else? Well, what's the, uh, what's the something else? At the end of the day, it's hard to know because our, our knowledge is limited. We don't know what we don't know. So there's always an incomplete comparison set. And you have to account for what the other possibilities could have been. And you can't really account for even the type or the style or the potential form of those other opportunities if you're not looking inward at what you could have done because at the end of the day, I think just empirically speaking, if people looked in the mirror, the source of the highest rate of return for you in your life is you. And so if we're not looking inward, looking at what we could go do out in the world, should if we had enough capital, we're jumping clean over where the greatest returns could have come from. All because we wanted to be first in line to violate Parkinson's law and squeeze out every dime of policy loan money. I didn't even expect to talk about any of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for the economic breakdown. You feel better? I do. Yeah. Perfect. Well, you needed to say it, and they needed to hear it. So. Hope that's helpful. That's 90 minutes. I'm hungry. <clears throat> All right. Well, listen, thanks for listening. I had fun. Bye, y'all. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.